Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. For the markets and for the economy, we look ahead to 2018. And as a Brit, I try and work out why we play this um, deficit game and this government shutdown game every single year. And to help me do that today is the former chairman of the Council of Economic Advisors, the current professor of the practice of economic policy at Harvard, is Jason Furman. And he joins us now. Jason, can you help out a Brit? Why do we do this? Why do we do this every year? I think uh, some of the self-inflicted wounds we set up on ourselves, it takes more than a Harvard degree to, to understand them. Uh, the debt limit, you know, no other country in the world has it. Denmark sort of does, but not really. And, you know, for most countries, when you worry about a country defaulting, you worry that people don't want to lend to them anymore. The United States is the only country that we worry it's going to default because it won't allow itself to borrow. <laughs> Except the markets um, don't seem to worry you know, about it at all, anymore. Jason. So, yeah, the way we set up these annual and, – and it's just a terrible way to run government. I mean it's just – as somebody that ran a really, really small government agency of about 35 people that you would get your funding for two weeks and then yeah. for a month and then another month after that, it made it hard for me. I can't imagine how the Pentagon um, deals with this type of environment. So you've been in government as a Democrat. The Republicans are in now. When is everyone going to get together and just stop doing it? Is there bipartisan support to end this nonsense on a yearly basis? I, I, I think there's some. I, I wrote an op-ed earlier this year with a Republican that I used to negotiate the debt limit, and we said we've both been through these negotiations. Um, we think that this has outlived its usefulness and, yeah. and it should should end. Um, government spending is another part of it. I, some people have the idea that maybe we should do two-year budgets. And so you put more effort into figuring out the spending levels. You budget over two years. I could see some logic for that um, as well. It's just, you know, these two-week budgets, that's what there's no logic for. So let's get to the big issue. And I know Tom Keane's going to jump in very shortly and get excited about this. The prospect of a $1 trillion deficit <laughs> in the United States of America. What is the significance of that, Jason? Yeah, I try not to scare people. So I talk about a 5% of GDP deficit. That one uh, doesn't scare me so much. But uh, No, no, but a trillion dollars, 5% of GDP, either way, it's, I, I, I think it's nuts. I, I really think it's nuts. I mean, we have 4% unemployment rate. We don't need a fiscal stimulus right now. We're getting a big fiscal stimulus that's going to have impact in financial markets as the Fed seeks to offset it. It's going to um, bring our deficit to a place where even with a strong economy, we're going to have this huge deficit. Imagine if the economy weakens, what it'll go up to. Um, you know, We're going to be dealing with this and digging out of it for the next decade. Really honored that Jason Furman could come with us for a substantial amount of time on this Friday. I'm just honored you turned up on on the Friday before Christmas time. Well, I did. Well, you know, welcome. You know, Thanks for coming on. <laughs> Bonus round. And, and sober, sober as well. well. <laughs> uh, uh, that Yuletide spirit of the Bloomberg surveillance. It's, it's amazing what a case of Pabst Blue Ribbon. Yeah. And it's still a value. <laughs> I've got to say, still a I've value got to say proposition. you're looking a touch hungover. I, I think a couple of martinis were consumed. Yeah, do At they really say night. Happy Christmas in England? They do. Happy you, Christmas? You don't say Happy Christmas? No, we say Merry You Christmas. say Merry? I, I think we yeah. use them interchangeably. J- Jason, I think we use Merry as well. John, John needs Bing Crosby and Danny Kaye, White Christmas. 
Sure. I, I think he needs a viewing at White Christmas uh, this holiday season to get him in a holiday cheer. We say good morning, Bloomberg Surveillance, brought to you by Invesco. Learn how Invesco is pure focus on investing. Diversity of thought and passion to exceed can help you get more out of life. Visit Invesco.com slash more out of life. Your advantage on Bloomberg Radio and that we can have a conversation with Dr. Furman and then drive it forward here. We talked an hour ago about the shadows and the memory of the early 1980s. Reagan, Stockman, there were, you know, to be not critical of Mr. Stockman, not critical of the late president, there were certitudes or beliefs about what would happen with tax cuts. And as you pointed out, oops, we had to have a period of tax increases. You're predicting that again. Do I have that right? Yeah. And, you know, I'm not predicting it for next year. I mean, with the Reagan tax cuts, you had a big tax cut in 1981. You had a correction in 1982, just a year later. And then you had several more. Remind us why that correction came about. Was it a dearth of GDP? If Gary Cohn can go out and say three, four percent GDP, did Reagan Stockman have to make that correction? Because of a, a dearth um, of Actually, GDP? not to correct you, Tom, but the president's top economic advisor said we'd get to 4% easily. He said okay. 4 Excuse me, John, that was a surveillance <laughs> correction. Can, can we just, can we, you know, I wish we were on TV so we could make a big red headline banner that Jason Furman just corrected yeah. Tom King. That happens right. often. Right. 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 I mean, this is a White House that's setting the bar at, at, at 4% for next year. And yeah, if that 4% growth doesn't materialize, we're going to see the deficit go up. I wouldn't expect this administration to reverse itself, but just as a mathematical fact, we are on an unsustainable course. When you're on an unsustainable course, we are either going to raise revenue or cut spending. I suspect right. we're going to do a bit of both. I want uh, John to get in here very quickly. I believe we go from 666 billion up to 1 trillion something in 24 months. Are you worried about a trillion dollar deficit? Or you're worried about the rate of change in getting there, the magnitude of the movement. Right. What I'm worried about is in good economic times, that's when you should be bringing your deficit down. And we're in good economic times, but our deficit is going up. That's the opposite of what you'd like to see. I'm actually not a huge deficit hawk, but the idea that, uh, you know, what, what I think we should be doing is having our debt on a sustainable course, which I view as falling as a share of GDP. If we could get our deficits to about two and a half, three percent of GDP, I'd feel okay with that. At five percent of GDP, that's where you're on the unsustainable side of this. And it's only going to get worse. The demography is only going to get worse. Yeah. Growth is only going to get more challenging. And so we're at the easiest part of our fiscal lives for the next coming decades. And if we can't do better than 5% of GDP now, where are we going to be a decade from now? Jason, here's the Ray Dalio take. While the tax bill will stimulate growth in the short term, we won't get much long-term mileage out of it in comparison to path to direct stimulus spending to areas that hit the core issues holding back US productivity. Why are we not doing something on the debt side to address U.S. productivity. It seems to me that if there was anywhere where you needed to borrow to invest in, it was to do something about the productivity question in the United States. Why are we not even thinking about it? Right. Well, let's just talk about one part of our productivity. Let's think of California and Silicon Valley. That's one of the most economically successful places in the world. It didn't get that way through low taxes and low regulation. It got that way because there's a great university there. Um, I don't think this is the only thing we need to do for our productivity. And, and as someone who teaches at Harvard, I'm a bit self-interested here. Yeah. Um, but you can't have great productivity without having great universities. 
universities. The tax bill we just saw would tax our universities for the first time and would cut state and local funding for our state schools. So that's the type of thing where I think it reflects a misplaced set of priorities and a misunderstanding about, you know, part of what's important for fueling long-run economic growth. Jason Furman uh, with this in For years, we would steal the black books from Sanford Bernstein to look uh, at the brilliant, lengthy work of one C. Moffat and M. Nathanson. Uh, they've been out on their own for a few years here, Moffat Nathanson. Craig does sort of the the phony kind of digital networking stuff, and Nathanson's content is king. So let me ask you a Michael Nathanson uh, question to start. Uh, is content still king? Um, content, yeah, content could actually be ascendant here. You know, if you think about the problem with television and cord cutting right now, which mm-hmm. has been getting worse and worse for the distributors, it's actually getting a little better for the media companies. Now, I think Michael would say the gap between the winners and losers is getting wider, not narrower. Yeah. And But the ones that are must-have and that have real programming advantage, and Disney, um, by making the play for Fox, is betting on that in a big way, uh, seem to be seem to be doing actually pretty well in this environment. A year ago, now in a year from now, what we hear, John and I hear from everybody we talk to, they hate commercials on TV. Where's that dynamic going? Well, I'll I'll give you my own editorial for for commercials. You know, everybody is betting in a very big way on targeted advertising as being the salvation of the advertising business. I'll take the other side of that. And I'm speaking for myself because Michael and I actually have a long running debate on this issue. But personally, my guess is that targeted advertising is going to turn out to be a very, very deflationary thing for advertising. Um, And that's counterintuitive. Most people assume that better targeting inevitably means higher CPMs or higher prices for advertising because it's less waste. The problem is the same technologies that allow better advertising also allow arbitrage. And the closer I can get to Tom Keene, the person, as opposed to a demographic that looks sort of like Tom Keene, the less I care about where I find you. Um, And inevitably, if I can find you personally and say, I'm advertising directly to Tom, then I will do so in the cheapest place I can find that reaches you. And the arbitrage aspect of targeted advertising almost always swamps the better targeting aspect of targeted advertising. And you end up with CPMs going down rather than up. I think Mm -hmm. that's going to be one of the big stories in advertising over the next five years is CPMs falling across the board. But again, I I don't want to put words in Michael's mouth because Michael and I, as I said, have had a long running debate on that. He disagrees. But Craig, this weekend, Tom's youngest will be watching Netflix. She will not be watching linear TV and she won't be seeing ads. Yeah, I will be going back and I will be watching Netflix and Amazon Prime and video on demand, etc. Who slays the Netflix beast in traditional media? Well, I guess the obvious question is: Is Netflix really a beast? You know, has Netflix? Well, walk has, us through that. Well, it, Netflix has turned into something different, right? I mean, Netflix initially had a was a a brilliant play to try to convince Wall Street that they were competing for what I t- try to call the the transport function um, but they were never in the transport business they were simply an aggregator and navigator of content and other people's content 
And I think, to Reed Hastings' credit, I think he understood way before anybody else did that the opportunity of navigation and and aggregation wasn't really all that big and wasn't nearly as big as the market was giving him credit for, and that he was going to have to pivot to being a content producer yeah. instead. The content that they produce is great content, and they've but they've turned themselves now into something like an HBO. It's a less... To me, anyway, it is a less compelling business. And again, it's a, a stock that Michael covers, but I think Michael would say, as they start to lose more of their Fox content, for example, it's going to be harder for them just based on the content that they produce themselves. Because the content creators have decided themselves they no longer need the content aggregators like Netflix. Disney made that decision by ending the licensing agreement with Netflix. That's right. And I wonder, and I asked Bob Iger himself, the CEO of the Walt Disney Company, whether he would do the same thing in the content he's just acquired from 21st Century Fox. He said, yes, we'd consider it. We'd consider just taking it in-house. Is that going to be the future that these content creators say, you know what, we're going to go over the top on our own? Maybe. Um, certainly Disney's going to do that to a degree, right? I mean, ESP, what they're planning with ESPN uh, mm. is 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 a uh, direct-to-consumer service, but it's not a substitute for the existing service. You're going to see badminton and bowling and 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 water polo on 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 the the direct-to-consumer internet business. You won't see football and basketball. Yeah. So, and even with their their direct-to-consumer for children's programming and that sort of thing, right. they're not looking to replace their existing ecosystem. They're looking to augment it. Uh, let's go over to your wheelhouse. You've been kind to talk about Michael Nathanson's world. Grandma has telephone with a 5.1% dividend. Verizon is at 4.5% yield. Is grandma safe with those dividends? Are you buy, buy, buy on those dividend uh, earners and modest, weak growers, or are they the ultimate value trap? Uh, you know, before tax reform, I would have said especially AT&T was a v v much riskier stock than people gave it credit for. Um, and I've been quite negative about AT&T for most of the past year. I upgraded it about four or five months ago in anticipation of tax reform, because even though AT&T isn't the biggest winner in tax reform on paper, they're not the highest statutory mm -hmm. rate payer, for example, um, they may be the biggest winner as a stock in my coverage universe, because... Tax reform takes the issue and the risk of a dividend cut almost entirely off the table for the time being. And that was emerging <clears throat> as the center of the bear case for AT&T. Yeah. It, 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 you slay that dragon and AT&T well, now is a much safer stock. And for a, a certain class of investors, it's a, a, a five plus yield is a hard thing to find. Okay, so on December 28th, they're going to have a, di uh, a meeting or a lunch or a dinner, or whatever, on the 20th floor of some skyscraper, or the 65th floor of some skyscraper in New York. What's their mergers acquisition plan for next year? I mean, are, are they going to have a good holiday season where they think strategically and say, we're going to do this next year? Or are they sort of in a strategic chaos? Well, at AT&T, at, at AT they've obviously got to wait to find out what happens with Time Warner. And and we're looking at probably April before we get the, the answer to that. Realistically, that's going to, to slow things down for a while um, after that's done. They're going to have a, a, a fair amount of digestion. Now, you know, it, it, tax reform helps that deal as well, assuming that it gets approved by the DOJ. Before tax reform, and remember, they struck that deal back before the election in 2016, you would have said they were paying a very full price for Time Warner. With tax reform now being priced into the market and with the inflation in all assets and also with the the benefit that, that tax reform gives to the Time Warner assets for earnings, 
the price that they're paying doesn't look so bad anymore. And so, um, so they win on a number of fronts if that deal gets gets uh, approved. Now, the, the the it's it's always been a double-edged sword, right? It, that deal, I think, is good for AT&T's income statement, bad for AT&T's balance sheet because they emerge very heavily levered for a company that that. Let's put you grow. on the spot. Does the deal get done? Um, I think more more likely than not, yes. Why does but, it get done, and what's going to be the holdup? Well, the, the 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 issue of of where are the potential um, issues around foreclosure is not a is not a manufactured issue. Skip all of the politics nonsense about uh, Donald Trump and disliking CNN. Yeah. I, I suspect that has nothing whatsoever to do with this. This is about some very real risks of vertical foreclosure. Um, the, the, remember, 85% of the content that Time Warner makes is sold to someone other than AT&T, and it's sold to AT&T's direct competitors. And so there are there, the potential for mischief is real. The reason I think the deal likely gets approved is because the conditions that AT&T has voluntarily agreed to <clears throat> with baseball-style baseball binding arbitration mm -hmm. and agreeing not to black out programming during programming disputes, mm. which is their their single biggest weapon, right. um, is likely to tip Judge Leon into um, saying, it's very hard for me to, to reject this deal if I personally agreed to exactly that same condition as the basis for approving Comcast no. and NBC back in 2010. Thank you for your perspective this year. We've greatly valued it on Bloomberg uh, surveillance. It was a media year with a shock of the Disney uh, Murdoch merger. Greatly appreciate when you and Michael show up together as well. Craig Moffat with Moffat Nathanson on the media. We really thank uh, all of the people on Wall Street that help us with uh, media perspective because, yeah, that's what we do. I get it. It's uh, totally narcissistic. We're just curious what's going to happen. But also, uh, the buy, hold, sell of it can be uh, interesting, not only in profit, but trying to avoid losses. Moffitt, uh, Craig Moffat of Moffat Nathanson as well. Uh, this is a joy on a retail day, and we've been doing a lot on retail, thanks to Oliver Chen of Cowan, who I thought yesterday was brilliant, and he's been really an optimist on retail over the last 18 months. And of course, he's doing that from sell-side uh, equities, doing that from the enthusiasm of buy-hold-sell. Mr. Storch comes at this a little different. With three shingles from Harvard, he launched into retail, and you know, the the whole ballet of it working at Hudson Bay and Lord and Taylor and others. And I guess it would start when you were in Cambridge and you take the red line across the Charles river and you take the green line out. And I don't know if you did this when you were in school to the luxury Nirvana of a chestnut Hill mall, which is sort of like on the D line, but maybe it's shorter on a C line. I can't remember. Do the chestnut Hill malls of America do they make it to the next decade? That mall will sure make it. I think what you'll see is a segmentation, just like in a lot of things. The malls that are really well located are incredibly value, valuable pieces of real estate. And we saw that big acquisition where uh, Unibel Redemco bought, yeah. uh, bought uh, Westfield malls. You know, if, if they're great malls, they're going to stay great. The content might change. And so it, the, the anchors may change. The restaurants might change. But there's always going to be room for those A malls. It's the it's the C malls that will go away and become doctor's offices, place to get an MRI when your knee hurts, that kind of thing. Well, John Farrow and I notice the changing of retail and restaurants in New York City. And good morning to all of you coast to coast that all have your own 
empty store stories. Let me ask the question I get all the time. Why can't the rents go down if the space is empty? Well, some of the rents have come to, come down in New York. They had uh, escalated quite rapidly on the high streets here. You know, it was Madison Avenue or down the Chelsea area. And those rents have come down very sharply. The only place that's held up pretty well is Fifth Avenue itself. So this does reflect that supply-demand imbalance. And that's going to happen all over the country. Jerry, give me an idea of the bricks and mortar store that survives the next decade. What does it look like? What does it do? Well, first of all, it's it's obviously experiential. You go yeah. there because you get something you're not going to get sitting at home. And so whether that means it doesn't mean that uh, that uh, you know you get to swing a golf club and pretend like you're you're playing golf. It has to relate to the content of the store. One of my favorite stories is uh, in the grocery industry where someone set out and they built the world's largest tower of oranges and people came from far and wide to see this. <laughs> that worked because it it, it was relevant. Yeah. to what they were selling and doing. So it'll be experiential. There'll be a service component. So someone will be there to be able to help you to match every morning, uh, much much to her chagrin. I asked my wife, you know, does this tie the right tie for this shirt or should I buy, get, put a different one on? She goes, I don't know. But, you know, people in the store do know. And so they can help you do that. It'll be, it'll be personalized based on data. So it'll combine the data from what you buy in line with what you buy in the store. And they'll be able to make good recommendations to you. So there's a lot of investment required to build that. It will not be the store of yesterday. It won't be the store of today uh, that doesn't receive significant investment. I went to a clothing store over the weekend where you tried on the jeans but could not buy them there. You had to buy them online. Does it become a showroom or is that just well, crazy well, talk? To some degree, that's one of the possibilities, but but I personally have never seen that work. I know that's become kind of a, a fad because the customer gets up and actually gets dressed, yeah. you know, and, and looks good and shaves or puts makeup on and heads on out. They expect to take it, the product home. Yes. You know, it's not much of a customer service to say you can't buy that today, but you, you did all the work to get over here. So I don't expect that to happen. I do expect people to buy replenishment orders that way, though. So they try it on, they find out the size, and they go, these shoes yeah. are perfect, for example. Shoes are really hard to buy online, you may have noticed. I, I, I think, you know, most of them don't even fit me when they come. But if I've tried on it, I know the brand, I know the size, then I can buy replenishment online. Jerry, before we lose you, getting ready for the holidays, you used to run Toys R Us. Help me understand the process for getting ready for the holidays to ensure that in January you don't have a load of stuff that you need to sell for 50, 60, 70, 80% off. Well, the planning at retail starts literally the first week of January. And uh, in the case of most industries, toys, electronics, the big shows take place in January. Everyone in toys go to Hong Kong the first week of, uh, of, of, the, of the new year. In the case of... Uh, in the case of electronics, as you know, the big electronics show in Las Vegas happens oh. very early in the year. Yeah. So you buy everything and plan very early on in the year. And uh, most of the orders are placed far, far in advance. You try to order lean yeah. and, and see, think if something's hot, you have to make a bet. There's a gambler in you. Okay. You know? Which toy did you go down in flames on? Which is a toy <laughs> where you were going, I don't care what you say. We're doing this. We didn't we're get buying, enough Furby. We're bearing yeah, we the, the Pharaoh Furby. Which one did you go down you know, in you flames have to on? Be, you have to be an optimist. So I, I don't remember any of those. I remember the ones we succeeded on. And interesting, there was this, this toy that was a little mechanical uh, mechanical hamster. And we bought the, these Juju pets. We bought the world supply of them. And they were the hit of the year. We had the greatest profitable year in the history of the company. The next Next year, I went to Hong Kong in that January, and the guy owned the company, nice guy, good friend. He goes like, you know, we're going to be as big as Lego. And I go, what are you doing? He goes, oh, look, like I go, you're never going to be as big as Lego with mechanical <laughs> hamsters. And he made too many. And the lore is they buried a million mechanical hamsters in a landfill somewhere in Hong Kong. Hey, Jerry, that is a great story. Jerry Storch, the CEO of Storch Advisors. Jerry, of course, the uh, former CEO and chairman of Toys R Us. It's been great to catch up with you, Jerry. Thank I you.
Diane Swank has been looking at the abruptness of the American economy. As I said, she was outstanding on this important Janet Yelling uh, Federal Reserve Day that we just had. Diane, as you write for the new year, what is your number one observation on Chairman Powell? Well, I think it will be a most challenging year for Chairman Powell. We're going to have is this divide in the Fed between those who really don't want to raise rates at all and those who are concerned that not only is inflation going to come back, but that financial bubbles are emerging. And that division, his ability to find a consensus, giving the growing divide within the Fed, is going to be his greatest challenge. Uh, within that is the new T word, which is trillion. We had four years in a row. I went back, folks, and I looked at the deficit. Uh, back to the depression and we've had deficits and we've had high deficits as a percent of GDP blowing out in World War II and that. Diane, as you know, we had financial crisis deficits four years in a row of over a trillion dollars. Two years from now, if we get the modeled trillion dollar deficit, that's a different trillion dollar deficit than the previous four, isn't it? Yes, it's largely man-made. I say largely because all of Congress is not man, but um, a lot of it is. And it is largely a man-made deficit because we did not do tax reform. We did tax cuts, and we haven't funded them. We haven't done with, dealt with the ecosystem of what the government budget is and what our priorities are as a nation, which is disappointing, to say the least. What I do worry about is many people have talked about the flattening of the yield curve and you know the Fed's inability to raise rates. I actually think we're moving into a phase that's very different, a 180 turn from that, where you're going to get upward pressure from rising deficits, a little bit of inflation. And remember, the Federal Reserve is also finally shrinking its behemoth balance sheet, allowing things to mature off that balance sheet at a more rapid pace every quarter. And all of that suggests that we'll get a return of the yield curve, which is welcome news, but it could also mean we're going to have to deal with even higher rates than many people are expecting. If you're just joining us, of Swank Economics, Diane Swank of Chicago. Diane, I think of the fiscal analysis of your University of Michigan, their great professor, Linda Tsar, and I think of Jason Furman with us earlier this morning. And I want to frame GDP, D is in David, and GNP, N is in Nancy. And as you know, Diane Swank, the model for this in the Western world is a small country called Ireland, and that Ireland has a GDP like we look at, But it's so much foreign money that their GNP, their domestic work, is a lot less than people would think, given the buoyant Irish economy. Do we risk that with this tax reform and these deficits? Um, Well, that's something we don't want to have happen, and Jason Furman is an excellent economist, and I listen to him and and think very highly of Jason. You know, what we really worry about is we don't know because we didn't spend the time to really think of all the unintended consequences of these tax cuts, and we wanted reform. Corporate America needed reform, but we didn't spend the time that's usually allocated to go through all these unintended consequences, and there are many, and that's what leaves me worrying about not next year, 2018, but 2020, 2021. This is where firms need to right. have their eye on. Well, they don't okay. just think about the next quarter. I was in the car last night, folks, getting off the surveillance Sikorsky to get home. And, and Diane, I, I brought this up and I brought you up where your, your Chicago Cubs tickets you take as a charitable contribution, just as an unintended consequence. What does this tax bill do to charitable contributions in charities if Pim Fox, Tom Keene, John Farrell, and Diane Swank are taking the standard deduction? 
Yeah, the the standard deduction is really worrisome for charities because even though the big you know the big donations, which I try to make bigger ones, um, those big donations should still continue to come in. It's really the masses that we we think about in terms of charitable deductions. And the thing that's so important about charities in the United States is because people would rather have their money attached to what they know and not something just government. Much of the charitable safety net in this country, much of the safety net, is fueled through charities and to lose that is very worrisome, how that could affect charities, food banks, things that even retraining programs, a lot of areas that really need just small donations may not get them. Okay, to all of you worldwide, we're going to rip up the script here. This is so important. I've got Diane Swank, who's been a leading light of Chicago, working with a guy named Diamond a few years ago before he wandered over to a New York (laughs) What's the name of the bank? And I've got one P. Fox in the studio. Pim Fox's family borders I, I He walks down Fifth Avenue and people, you know, they genuflect and they nod to him and all that. He's such a midtown. I mean, Donald Trump wishes he was a midtown bastion like your family. Well, my. Pim, yeah. What does this tax bill do to the culture of New York City charity? Well, I think it's going to be strained. But on the other hand, you know, if you're going to change the way you give based on the tax laws in the country, then I think that the charity or the uh, the 4013C or whatever the particular nonprofit is uh, has to do some work and try to figure out exactly their reason for being. And I think one of the biggest trends you're seeing in nonprofit and charities is that younger uh, donors prefer to give to causes and things that right. make a difference. Yeah. They are less interested in supporting orchestras, cultural institutions, and that's going to be, I think, probably well, one of know, the biggest you, challenges I, is for those okay. places. That You define Diane Swank as she donates to the Chicago Cubs, but Diane, what are you seeing? <laughs> I mean, you've been a real force in Chicago. Chicago. <laughs> well, it sounds good on radio, but, but Diane, go with me here. What does it mean for Chicago if somebody, forget about the rich people, somebody wants to pony up $800, I'm sorry, in their head they're going 40%, that's $320 I'm saving to my tax bill. Right, Diane? It is actually true, and I do I do think it does make us rethink what charities, and, and some of that is welcome news. There are charities that are less deserving than others, I agree, but also there's charities, I'm, I believe, in the arts as well. But I think there really is something to yeah. be said about how peop, young people think. I'm working on charities that actually a, long, a lot of young people are very involved yeah. in, and you want to see where your money goes, and you want accountability. That said, it's still going to be harder, even in the most accountable of charities to get right. those smaller donations, and Diane, that's going to be a concern. Diane, thank you so much for being with us this year, and particularly your yeoman's duty away from your clients on the days of uh, Federal Reserve press conferences and such. She is Diane Swank of Swank Economics in uh, Chicago. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.